So today, uh, as we continue this series, um, before we do, let me see, uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that at times we need uh, take, to take moments of prayer and be able to think about those that are in need. So I want you, before I pray, to just kind of think about maybe some people around you, people you work with in your family, or maybe even yourself, uh, that is in need of feeling the presence of God, uh, in need of healing, in need of those things that sometimes are beyond our control. So let's take a moment of silence, just kind of close your eyes for a moment, and this might be you, this might be someone that you know. Father, we come before you, and we are thankful that you know the needs of the human experience. You know, Father, that many times as we walk through this world, we experience the highs and the lows, the valleys and the sidetracks that sometimes take us off the path. And we ask, Lord God, that whatever might be in our heart today and those that are in our mind that need your healing touch, those that need intervention for relational issues or financial problems, for those, Father, that might be weary of doing good, for those who feel that they have nothing left to give to other people. We're asking for you to meet them anew, even as you met Jacob so long ago. Lord, help us to remember the altars of remembrance that we come back to, to renew us, to re-energize us, to enable us to continue on the journey. We're thankful, Father, that you have not left us behind, but you continue to come back to us and to meet us at our point of need. And so we come and we pray for those that are part of Shade Tree and those that are beyond our own church that just need you to touch them again. We come humbly and ask, Lord, Father, in our dependence upon you to meet us where we are and to provide for us where we cannot provide for ourselves. We're thankful for Jesus who promises that he is aware of our every need, that even as the lilies of the field and the birds of the air are taken care of by God the Father, so too our needs will be taken care of. We ask, Father, as we come before you today, to help continue to work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to be receptive to it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today we're going to continue this uh, exploration of looking at different topics uh, that maybe are on the radar of many different people that you know, but uh, maybe they don't feel the permission or liberty to be able to ask these type of questions. When we started this church a number of years ago, it started as an experiment. And we didn't know how long it will last, and here we are seven years later, and we've journeyed through a lot of different things, and we're on the other side of COVID-19, and who knows what the future is going to hold, but what we do know is that one of the things that we are trying to do 
is be a laboratory where we do not feel confined by the religions around us that say, no, you can't ask that. No, you can't explore there. No, you can't question this or that. And hopefully, you feel that freedom here. And if you do feel that freedom here, you'll know that when we ask questions, whether we can answer them or not, they enlarge our ability to see life differently, to see other people differently as well. So the questions we have been asking are pretty profound questions, really. Things like, how did it all begin? Who is God? What is humanity? What is religion? Today we're going to ask, what is worship? And worship is kind of a subset of religion. And I think it is something important for us to remind ourselves. If you have not listened or seen uh, the previous messages, you'll know that these messages are kind of interlocking. And I think they're building on one another. So if you kind of miss some of that, there's kind of gaps maybe in where I'm going with this. But last week we talked about a definition of religion that's kind of technical but important. Religion is a complex of culturally prescribed practices based on premises about existence and nature of superhuman powers, whether personal or impersonal, would seek to help practitioners gain access to and communicate or align themselves with these powers in hopes of realizing human goods and avoiding things bad. When you think about people that are immersed within religion, Many times the thing that is motivating them is either fear of dying or fear of the future or fear of failure. All these type of questions start pouring in and religion has a way of answering those, sometimes too simplistically, right? Binary as well. But what we find is religion is something that is found all around the world And they have common components. And so we talked about this last week. Beliefs and practices. Every religion has dangers. But the essence of a religion is either freedom or fear. Depends upon what the motivator is in the life of those that founded that religion. So today I want to talk about what is worship. And I want to pinpoint one aspect of religion that you'll find when you research it. Religion uses altars, A-L-T-A-R-S. And we want to talk about these altars that can be found everywhere. You can see a picture here representing some of the world religions. And what you're going to find is that if you look at all of these altars... There's something upon them, either there's idols or icons or the imaginations of what that God you're worshiping is like. So these idols sometimes are way beyond our understanding in the West. We can't understand why there's idols of an elephant, those type of things. Nor can we understand sometimes some of the icons that we take for granted, things like this, a cross that some people wear around their neck. But the imagination is often found in some of the practices that we will participate in here in a few moments. 
Here we have bread and a cup that represents the body and blood of Jesus. And all of these things are meant for us to connect in some way and enable worship so that people like you and like me can be united together in asking the deep questions of life and seeking some type of answers. And if there are not answers, the ability to embrace the mysteries of some of these questions. So today, what I want to do is ask two key questions. Question number one, what is worship within these religious traditions? And what is the purpose of the altar within these traditions? So when we look at the religious traditions around the world, one of the things that we will find is these religions all have some things in common. First is adoration or praise. So when a religion has a God that they seek to worship, that God is seen as greater than, more powerful than those that are worshiping. And so those that are worshiping come with some type of praise or adoration of that God for who that God is and what that God means in the life of the worshiper. Now, Adoration or praise can be in the form of some of the psalms, like the one I read. It can be done by means of singing. It can be done by means of prayer. It can be done through meditation. It can be done through some observance or ritual, like the Lord's Supper. All of these things are ways of looking beyond ourselves, right? To be able to say, this God that we serve is a God that is worth giving him praise. Now, praise also has an opportunity for renewal with us. One of the things I think we don't ask in regard to worship is at the altar, whether it is the altar of praise or the altar of prayer, the altar of petitioning God to intervene in some capacity, one of the things that we fail to see is that God is not so such a super ego that he needs our praise, that he's somehow less than unless we're giving him praise. Praise and worship and adoration is a participatory thing where we are able to experience that moment like Jacob did where God is here, God is real, God is present. And when we engage in that, we can feel that we are that are connected to God. Now, one of the things that we just did was pray on behalf of other people that you know. And that's another common thing within world religions. Appeals that are made to this higher power and petitioning this higher power to intervene sometimes in very tragic circumstances. Whether it's through grief or whether it is through some type of lack of means that uh, you lost your job, you lost a relationship, whatever it might be, God, meet me here, I'm about ready to fall apart. Then the third thing is some type of atonement. Now this is what's interesting in world religions. Many times world religions have a perspective that God cannot love you unless you do something to earn his love. All right? So in some world religions, it might be participating in a pilgrimage. 
It might be some type of religious practice that is somehow self-abasing. Sometimes it is this idea that God is so holy and removed from you that the only way that he can allow you into his presence is if some type of punishment takes place. So the technical term for that is atonement. Uh, even a deeper word than that is called propitiation. That is, unless God gets a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it's animals. In the New Testament, it's it's Jesus. Uh, In other world religions, it can be a whole variety of different things. Unless God gets that, then you are doomed. You are judged. Uh, You are separated from him forever. That's why so much fear happens in world religions, right? The fear of being rejected, the fear of being judged, the fear of being condemned. So these things are all commonalities that are often a part of the worship experience. And along with that, a lot of times comes guilt and shame that's poured upon people that they sometimes carry on their shoulders, sometimes for years and years of self-judgment. And so people will take different ways of trying to achieve some type of freedom from that fear. Well, thank God that we are told that there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now that's from a Christian perspective. But the deeper perspective is, does God relish the opportunity of wanting to judge us, of wanting to condemn us? Or is he primarily motivated by love? So from that then comes question number two. What is the purpose of the altar? Now an altar can be anything that's kind of elevated that represents the presence of God. Now one of the things that we just read was out of Genesis chapter 28 where uh, Jacob has this experience and as he has this experience he takes note that this is a sacred spot. This is a spot that he needs to remember. And so he sets up a stone there. It's a stone that he used for a pillow. That doesn't sound very comfortable to me, but he is on the run from his twin brother. So if you read earlier in the chapters of Genesis, Jacob and Esau are twins, right? And they are different as night and day Esau is a rugged guy, he's a hunter, Um, he is an individual that is hairy, the text tells us. Jacob, on the other hand, is more of a mama's boy, He he has no interest in hunting and all those type of things. So, who is going to be favorites? Well, for Isaac, the father, Esau is his favorite. He's going out, he's getting wild game, he's cooking it, he's bringing it to his dad. But Jacob is the favorite of his mother. And so one day, Jacob decides that he wants God's, uh, not God's, his father's blessing upon him. His dad is old, he's losing his eyesight, he... Uh, is about ready to die, and an ancient tradition was then to uh, bless the uh, sons so that they would carry on the family name and tradition and so forth. And so mom says to Jacob, listen, 
before Esau goes out and hunts for a piece of game and captures the blessing of your father, let's trick him. And so <laughs> Jacob puts on his Halloween costume <laughs> and he is fooling Isaac. And he pretends that he is Esau. And mom cooks a meal and he takes it into his dad who by then is hard uh, of, of seeing and, and he tricks him and his father gives him the blessing. And here comes Esau. And Esau comes in and he sees that uh, Jacob has stolen his blessing. And from that point on, the two are at odds. And Esau can squ uh, squash Jacob like a bug, right? So Jacob takes off. And as he flees from his brother, he comes to this place that he will name Bethel, which means the house of God. And it is there that the Abrahamic covenant is reiterated to him. I am the God of your father Abraham and Isaac, and I will be with you. And I will bring you to this place where you're going to be a great nation. Not that he deserved it. He's an individual that really was a deceiver. But God had not left him. God was still with him. And God was going to provide for him. And so Jacob takes this stone... And he had been laying on this all night, and he has a dream. A dream of a ladder that's going up to heaven, and angels are ascending and descending on it, ministering to Jacob in his need. And when he wakes up in the morning and he's ready to move on, he takes this stone and he sets it up as an altar of remembrance. Well, this altar is a tradition. Some sacred place, a sacred site, some special spot where an individual remembers and consecrates and dedicates himself to the worship of this God. So there are three parts to this, just like in worship, the commonality is adoration and appeals and atonement. In the purpose of this one spot within worship, it's a place where there's a connection with the divine. Jacob wakes up and he says, surely God is in this place, right? And there are moments in your life and mine where you just felt God was with you. doesn't mean it's in church necessarily. It means that in the wide world in which we traverse, God meets us sometimes. And it might be in a park. It might be uh, in an episode of your life where just in the quietness of the moment, you feel God's presence stronger than you do at other times. And it's a place that you consecrate, at least in your mind, that you met God there and God provided for you in that space. Second is consecration. That is, there's a reverence there. There is this hum of the divine that is within our soul. And, and you pay attention to it. And you recognize it. And you honor it. And then thirdly, is a commitment to the divine. Sometimes through pain and perseverance. One of the things that's interesting in the study of world religion is that 
all the world religion began out of pain. Did you know that? Out of some type of pain and suffering. So let's think about this for a moment. Let's think about um, Buddhism for a second. Buddhism began when there was this overprivileged prince that was protected from suffering his whole life. And from his birth, he never seen any suffering at all. One day he leaves the palace grounds and he sees a sick man. And then he sees an old man. And then he sees a dead man. All of a sudden, it becomes an altar of consecration in his heart. As he passed by these three sites that affected him so deeply, he decides he's going to dedicate himself to easing the suffering of all who face the pain that, are, that is inherent in being alive. And so if you know anything about Buddhism, you know that Buddhism is trying to teach you how to connect with the divine. And as you do so, um, you recognize that a lot of the pain and suffering in the world comes from the desires that we have in our own heart that inflicts uh, pain upon other people. Think about Judaism for a moment. The central story is the Exodus, in which God heard the cries of these immigrant people suffering under forced labor camps for 400 years, seeing fatal beatings upon uh, those that were beginning to fail in their health, seeing newborns thrown into the Nile River. God hears their cry and raises up Moses to go in and to say to Pharaoh, what? Let my people go. Think about Christianity. It began as Jesus emerged from his own wilderness experience, tempted by the evil one. And it is in the midst of his three years of ministry that he sees the suffering of people physically, emotionally, and politically. And he is crucified on a Roman cross, the epitome of human suffering and political, political punishment. Think about Islam. It began in a cave outside the desert city of Mecca where the prophet Muhammad, Muhammad prayed to God for some solution to the tribal warfare that was taking place among his people. Pain and suffering seems to be the impetus that started most of the world religions that we see around us. And pain is a part of the process of worship because it is something that opens us up to God and to what he wants to teach us. So now I want to finish that story about Jacob. So in chapter 28, we saw how he took off in fear of his brother. And then as you move to a few chapters later, in chapter 35, 14 years have passed. 14 years have passed. And chapter 35, verse 1, it says, Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel. That's the place that he named, right? Bethel, the house of God. And settle there. 
And then it says, And build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, he had nothing in his pocket as he fled. And now he's returning with a family. Now he's returning with livestock. Now he's returning with possessions. Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob, these are his wives and his family members, all the foreign gods that they had and the rings in their ears. And Jacob built and buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, the house of Elohim. Because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it is named Alan Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. And Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he also poured oil on it, and Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. That completes the story. Now he's back in the land. And as he's returned back to the land, he recognizes at this very specific spot, God had met him there. And because God had met him there, he builds a bigger altar, a bigger pillar, and he pours oil on it as a way of dedicating it as an altar of remembrance. So some key thoughts here. Worship is part of the process of waking up to the presence of God in the first story. Jacob's on the run. He finds a stone that he used for a pillow. He has a dream. God promises his presence, and he renames the place Bethel. Now as he comes back in chapter 35, worship is a part of the process of character change. Not only is his character changed, but his name is changed as well. You're no longer going to be Jacob. You're going to be Israel, which means one who struggles with God and overcame. So he returns to this same site. He builds this altar of remembrance out of the stone. He puts away the foreign gods. And he tells his wives, his children and tells his family members that we're going to bury this. And as we bury it, we're going to just worship the God Almighty, El Bethel. 
his name is changed because he's willing to go through the process that took him 14 years. Now think about that in relationship to worship. Worship is that process where we wake up some, at some point to the presence of God. And because we wake up to the presence of God, we begin a process of character change. And that character uh, change then takes a long period of time. And as it takes a long period of time, we become a different person. Now, when we think about world religions... They have a variety of different ways to do that. So let's think through this for a moment. First of all, Judaism for a moment. So this process of paying attention and character, uh, character change in Judaism is not just uh, a moment in time, but a weekly ritual called the Sabbath, right? So each week on Friday night, the Sabbath begins, and they do no work until sunset on Saturday. It's a way of making themselves aware of God and his work. But they also have festivals during the year. The Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, a festival of Thanksgiving called Sukkot, Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, Festival of Merrymaking, Purim, and the Festival of Freedom, Passover. So interspersed throughout the year is a variety of ways of waking back up to the presence of God. Think about Islam for a moment. They have five pillars. But the most important of those pillars is five times a day, they stop wherever they're at, they put out a small rug, they bow down in prayer as a way of remembering and reverencing God. Think about Buddhism for a moment. In Buddhism, there's an eightfold path. This eightfold path is a right view, a right resolve, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. And that's a lifelong process as well. Our nephew, here is a guy that was raised in the West, Esti's brother's son. He... Had, he had everything in front of him. Went to Northwestern University, was hired at Facebook, and he left it all. And right now he's in Thailand studying to become a Buddhist monk. What a change. Something happened there that he pursued this path to connect with the divine. Even though within Buddhism... Uh, the concentration is not necessarily on God at all, but on this way of life. Think about Hinduism. We often look at Hinduism and we might be captured, uh, captured by the colors of Hinduism. But if you want a party type of religion, Hinduism is the way to go. I mean, they got all kinds of festivals throughout the course of the year. Hindus believe that each person is intrinsically divine and the purpose of life is to seek and realize the divinity that's within all of us. Worship is less formal, but in Hinduism, there is different ways that they try to connect to the divine. Think about Christianity. That's what we're most familiar with. 
the essence of Christianity resolves itself around the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one who gave his life through teaching and sacrifice and then ultimately death. But even within Christianity, there are calendar moments that's supposed to wake us up again in our resolve to better know God. One of them is coming up here in a couple months called Advent, taking four weeks to prep the heart for the celebration of Christ's entrance into the world through the Incarnation. The other one is called Lent, starting on Ash Wednesday through Easter, a time of reflection, a time of resolve, a time of renewal. So all these religions have some type of altar of remembrance. That's what I'm trying to say. And so part of their worship experience, an altar can be a physical place. It can be something that is set up where something like these two things are placed there as a way of remembering. It can be used as a place where candles are lit and a variety of other things. But what we find in all of this is that in every religion, the commonality that we have is that there's altars of remembrance. So Jacob slept in the house of God and he awoke to the presence of God and none of it was his doing. And it was a simple act of taking a stone that he used for a pillow and marking the spot and saying, this is filled with the presence of God. And someday I'm going to come back here. And he did. You know, God has places of altering for all of us. And usually what it takes to build an altar is broken things. No altar is poured out of one piece of material. Usually it is put together in brick by brick and stone by stone, at least ancient altars. Archbishop William Temple once said, it's a great mistake to suppose that God is only or even chiefly concerned with religion. God is up to something more. God is up to helping us wake up to his presence in our lives and in the world around us. Saint Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, put it this way, the tender flesh itself will be found one day, quite surprisingly, to be capable of receiving, and yes, full capable of embracing the searing energies of God. Isn't that cool? It's a neat, that's a neat quote. All I can say is any place where you feel the energies of God can be an altar of remembrance. Altars can be ordinary places where humans have met and continue to meet God in a special way. And so, what we're going to do now Let's take one of those moments that we do on a regular basis and we take a piece of bread and we take a cup and we remember two aspects of the life of Christ, his body and his blood. The body and blood of Christ represents that outpouring of God's love through Christ to all those that are willing to partake. Now, I chose today to use matzah crackers or our bread. And this is a Jewish um, uh, type of bread, and it's quite remarkable, really, when you think about it. 
Uh, it is seared with holes and it is burnt uh, with these markings on it. And it's unleavened. Unfortunately, it's not gluten-free. <laughs> but it represents in many ways what we all go through in life. We all have had holes in our soul, right? And we have all been burnt in various ways in this thing that we call life. But Jesus takes that. He absorbs it. And he dies showing God's love for us in the middle of our pain. So if you want to take one of these and pass it around and hold it, and we will eat together. Then, Jesus took a cup of wine, and the cup of wine is such that it represents his blood spilt for us to show the extent of his sacrifice to each and every one of us. And so take a cup and pass it around, and we'll hold it, and we will eat together. Such a simple thing, really. A piece of bread and a cup. Right? Something we use every day. We, most of us have some type of bread for the meals that we take. And then we drink something out of a cup. And Jesus takes two common objects. A piece of bread and a cup to represent for us what it means to be his follower. Jesus took a piece of bread and broke it, and he said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we take this piece of bread, and we remember the life, the ministry, the teaching, and love of Jesus. Let's eat together. At the Passover festival, and Jesus takes a cup of wine, he holds it up, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And he reminds us that God is always up to something to renew our relationship with him. There are many different paths that people take to try to meet God. But we think that through Jesus, this place where God pours out his love. God so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. Life beyond this life, yes, but a life within this life that is meant to be lived with flourishing. Jesus said, I came to give you life and that in abundance. So all of that is poured into this cup. And we use it as an altar of remembrance. Let's drink together. Stand with me, please. I have a final thought that I want to share with you. When God shows up in a substantial way, Remember to build an altar of remembrance. That altar might not be something physical like Jacob, but it should be at least something mental, right? That you take note of it. You put a little asterisk beside it. Maybe you write down in your notes somewhere, 
a journal or on a calendar, God met me in a special way here. Because at times we need to return to that altar. Because when tough times hit, it's those altars of remembrance that sustain us. When God shows up in a substantial way, remember to build an altar of remembrance for you never know when you will need to return to it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the story of Jacob. Thank you for the way it illustrates how we can come back to those places that we have left and see that you have never left us. And we realize, Father, sometimes many years, many chapters have passed. But we come back to those moments. We give you thanks for your love and your grace. And it's my prayer, Father, wherever we are on our journey with you, that we will never forget, that we will never have short memories of your work in our lives. And so, Father, use the altars of remembrance in our life to renew us to change us, and then to use us. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thanks for coming. We will see you soon, and have a great day.